0: yes the intro music is a little bit of a hint about today's topic hello and welcome to the team guru podcast this is episode number six in this show i take you along on my quest to discover the real-life practical truths about team and leadership performance. I want to bring to life our understanding of the principles and theory of this great discipline. In the world of team and leadership development, symphony orchestras are often held aloft as the quintessential example of unity, a place where collective effort bears a most beautiful fruit. And it makes sense a large number of people applying their enormously varied talents and skills in order to produce one remarkable outcome. In an effort to discover exactly how it all comes together, I thought I'd head straight to the top and ask one of the world's premier conductors about the inner workings of a symphony orchestra. Johannes Fritsch is a rock star of the classical world. Last year, he finished his tenure as the chief conductor of the Queensland Symphony Orchestra where he oversaw the most challenging time in their long history, a merger with the Queensland Philharmonic Orchestra. In his role as chief conductor, he very much sees himself as a leader of people. Johannes was born in Meissen, East Germany. He grew up, was educated, and began his professional career under communist rule. This and his 35 years' experience performing with orchestras and opera companies all over the world has shaped his approach to leadership. I spoke to Johannes a few weeks ago while he was visiting Brisbane as a guest conductor with the Queensland Symphony Orchestra. We began our conversation in a coffee shop, so the first 11 or 12 minutes has a little bit of background noise, but it's really not too bad. After that, we moved into the soundproof environment of a conservatorium practice room where the acoustics are wonderful. In this interview, Johannes gives us amazing insight into the way a professional orchestra puts together their performances and recruits their members. But most of all, he takes us deep within his own personal philosophies on leading people and producing beautiful music. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Johannes Fritsch. Johannes Fritz, thank you so much for joining me for a chat. Mm-hmm, you're welcome. Johannes, how does a young musician find themselves on the path to becoming a conductor?
1: Well, there are different ways to become a conductor. Most of the time, a young instrumentalist who has studied a certain instrument, like a violin or on the piano or woodwind brass instrument, finds it fascinating that there is this guy in front of the orchestra. And then once you have studied the instrument thoroughly, you can study conducting at a university, conservatorium of music, um, um, or overseas in one of the music uh, universities. And this is then a three, four, even five years long um, university studies, which includes all aspects of conducting and, and, and score and musicology and so forth.
0: So I know that when you first went to university to study music it was the trumpet and the piano yeah. I and mean, you had ideas that you might one day become a conductor yeah. but very early one of your teachers suggested that you think about doing it right then. Yeah, there. Yeah.
1: I, I started right away at the university in my second year so I changed from, from piano and trumpet to conducting whilst continuing the piano and trumpet studies.
0: So what was different about your talent or your skill set that made you think that conducting was a path for you and made your teacher suggest that you, you get into it straight away? Well, um, I, I I don't know about my talents back then. Um, I grew
1: up in a, in a family where music was apparent of everyday life. My father was an organist in a, in a Lutheran church and we did lots of music at home and all my siblings played an instrument. And... I guess I was interested in the whole picture more than just in one instrument and back in my home I had conducted as a 15, 14, 15, 16 year old small ensembles or a choir or or so so it was not not totally new to me the idea to, to conduct a larger ensemble.
0: How did you get that opportunity
1: at such a young age? well maybe once my father was sick and i took over the choir or i worked with a with a brass ensemble which played played outdoor concerts or so yeah it it came to me um, a bit by coincidence so i guess it was luck
0: and was it those very early experiences that gave you the idea that that might be the path for you i think it was more
1: my my general interest in and the full piece, you know, it's a big difference if you sit in an orchestra and play just one line, your line, especially as a trumpet player, you don't have as many notes to play as a, a violin player. And I, lo- I loved to play the piano and I was interested in studying the opera scores on the piano. So that was my first approach to, to conducting. Actually, that was my first approach to the professor. I went to and asked if I could study coaching as opera coaching, which means you learn to to play the opera scores on the piano in order to teach them the sing- to the singers. And then he suggested why, uh, he asked why, and said, you know, maybe i um, like to conduct later opera. And so that one led to the next one.
0: But what I'm trying to really get out of you, and you're obviously a very humble man, is that not all musicians rise to the level of conductor so what is it that you've got what is your special talent or or an ability that you've got that maybe other talented musicians don't have
1: i think um since conducting is such a complex matter um, many aspects are foreign to you when you started at the university and there's a lot to learn after you leave university so what i learned at university was more or less the technical, so it's the technical skills, the rain, re- uh, the, the simple the physical skills to conduct with all all uh, detail work, the skills to read and to learn scores, the skills which come along with that, to listen to an orchestra to rehearse with an orchestra. But this is already a part which I learned more after I left university and actually practiced. Because the the weird thing with conducting is you seldom have the instrument there to practice. You know, an instrument, a an, an violin student, he has, or well, she has the instrument at home and practice eight hours a day. Um, as a conductor, you need an orchestra to learn and the opportunities to conduct a real orchestra whilst being at university are not that that great we worked with a student orchestra we had uh, opportunities to work with a professional orchestra but that wasn't a day to day training so um, what what I was confronted with when I left university and got my first job, which I was 22 back then. That was quite young. So I, I started a full-time contract with a professional opera house and, and orchestra. At 22? At 22, yeah, yeah. Is
0: that quite rare in the conducting world?
1: Well, it, it, it's nowadays, yeah. It was not so rare back um, 35 years ago when I started. And in East Germany, there was not much space for you to to hang around after school you know after finishing school it was either doing apprenticeship or work or go to university and then after university you had to go to work and not not doing nothing um, having said that i was lucky to get a good job that was not not to everybody of my my uh, fellow students um, uh, they had they have been that lucky lucky So suddenly I I was in the position to stand in front of 60, 70, 80 professional musicians who were all older than me and all more experienced. Do you remember that moment? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was scary. Scary for 10 years. The first five years in Rostock and then the next five years were in Dresden, which is an excellent, one of the leading orchestras in the world. So um, then the part of leadership started Uh, where I had to learn these skills and um, that is a long and
0: quite exhausting path. Tell us about the awakening to the fact that you're the leader of the orchestra. You would have already, always known that in essence because you'd see yeah, yeah. music uh, happen in front of you yeah. all your life but when were you able to see that there was something even greater than the musical skill and knowledge and talent that you had there was mm. that human connection and the, the the ability to lead the people who were relying yeah. on you
1: I mean, especially with, with conducting compared to other leadership positions, it is clearly the fact that you have 80 highly trained, excellent trained musicians who individually know more about their skills than you will ever know. That's number one. Number two is you have to be aware of that fact. And number three is they all need the conductor in order to be able play together as an ensemble. To meet their professionalism and their quality you have to be extremely good in your technical skills as a conductor and in all aspects of preparation for the piece you you, you would you will conduct because you have to convince those eighty people to do that they do what you want.
0: Does that very feature present one of your most common challenges as a conductor. The fact that a a violinist in the first violin section knows far more about playing the violin than you do, but you've got to lead him. Does that, is that the point at which you have some of your leadership challenges with individuals within the orchestra? This is, this
1: is some. um, I think the bigger one is that each one in the orchestra has an opinion how a particular piece should be played or should sound. And It will only work if one gives a direction, that is the conductor in that case. And it is my responsibility and my duty and challenge for me to convince the orchestra that the way I like to do it is good. I I don't need to convince them that's the only way how it can be done, but I have to convince them that the way I want it to be played works in simple terms of ensemble and technique uh, challenges and secondly and even more important in the way of of the musical language.
0: How much latitude is there in a musical score for you to interpret it and have it performed the way that you imagine it as opposed to just reading it and playing it the way it was meant to be played? Oh there, there's
1: um, a Lots of space in in terms of interpretation because of these black dots on the on the paper, which we call crotchets or quavers or quavers give only a very vague indication how to play it. I mean, they indicate very clearly the pitch, and nowadays we are absolutely clear about the pitch. We the orchestra tunes and on the same pitch, and then um, but even the pitch is not 100 uh, percent. How to how to say it is. It's still negotiable within within the harmonic world, and and how to tune an orchestra or how to balance chords in terms of, of intonation is quite quite a difficult thing, and it's not nothing you can answer with a science answer. So that is that is one thing. Everything has to what has to do with dynamic and speed is to a certain extent uh, flexible. Yeah, the speed, the tempo is given by a composer, but not always absolutely clear. And there are many, many ways to read those instructions. So you have quite a number of, of variables.
0: So the way that you choose to perform within an orchestra is always up the con- up to the conductor to decide. Yes. And how is your decision-making process on that very important question, developed over your 32 years as a conductor? Well,
1: first it starts with with an absolute thorough reading and studying of a score and knowing as much as possible about the composer, about the style, about the time, about the
0: background. Okay we're recording we just had to move then Johannes because the coffee shop got very noisy and yeah. you were telling us about the way that your decision-making process has developed through your career.
1: Yeah uh, as a, as I mentioned before it's is a combination of studying the actually piece the, st- the score and knowing as much as possible about it and the background and the composer and the time and the style and of course with years of of experience in this profession I made my own personal experiences with certain pieces when I conducted them before. So it's now quite a nice feeling to come back to operas or symphonies or other pieces I've done before, and it feels much easier than 20 or 30 years ago.
0: And do you play around with pieces and play them in a different way than you did last time you came across that piece? Well, I don't think it's ever the same because...
1: Um, every orchestra is different and even if you perform the same piece with the same orchestra music is is alive you can't replicate what what you have done before it will always be different and this is quite exciting
0: yeah it does. and is that is that yeah. part of the thing that really challenges you and keeps you in love yeah. with it, what you do It challenges and it's great pleasure to do it
1: like with opera performances, sometimes even more, because you perform an opera five, ten, twenty times. Yeah? Sometimes in Europe, in the opera houses, even more often over the years, when the same production is in the program for five years and and will be performed each season, maybe eight to up to ten times. So you have different singers, you have different musicians, um, you have different audience, which plays a big role in the way a performance unfolds and you are in a different mood you are in a different situation in your life you had a different day every every day before you go in the orchestra pit or on the podium and that that all influences
0: the way a performance finally happens and i find that extremely exciting to try and understand this from a non-musician's point of view how different can the same piece with the same orchestra be from performance to performance when you're, you've you prepared, say, from one night to another, just depending on your mood as the conductor and the way that you stand in front of them and conduct? Well, mood is maybe not, not the right word, because that, that sort
1: of sounds a bit like I mean, if I'm in a bad mood, then it's a bad performance. No, but the, simply the feeling for a tempo, for a speed, depends, for instance, on your blood pressure or on your heart, on the, on the rate of your heartbeat. And I worked a lot with ballets, with dancers, in in various opera companies um, in, in Europe. Um, we always have the dance company in the, in the opera house. So I conducted lots of, of uh, ballet performances, Swan Lake and Nutcracker and all this stuff. And it was very interesting, dancers who so it depends on their body function yeah, because that's their instrument. They have a different tempo experience every day as well. So I sometimes did um, out of interest the, the experiment and timed a certain piece, like the bolero by Ravel, the famous bolero, yeah, which is a continuing drum rhythm, and then the orchestra, Builds up over that. That piece takes 14 minutes approximately. So, and I took exactly the time because we had one one period in Dresden where we performed ten times in within 14 days. And the total uh, duration of my interpretation, if you would like to call that, was between 14 minute and 14 minute 20 seconds. So it was 20 seconds plus minus, which is not much in 40 minutes. But it never coincided with the feelings the dancer had. If I was a bit faster, they said, oh, it was so slow today, or vice versa. So that that tells us that how we experience and feel tempo depends a lot on our feeling, how, how our body is in that moment. So And that is not only for me, some, but for the, all of the orchestra. So orchestra can come with me or can be a bit dragging or can be a bit pushy so
0: these are all very small variables to to actual performance so the music and the performance of music is very much a living organism isn't it it happens
1: on the spot you prepare it but then it happens on stage in the moment in the second and i will react to what comes back from the orchestra if i feel that they are in a very good form and I can take a bit more time or can stretch it a bit more or speed it up a bit more when necessary, then of course I will do that. And that is that is a fascinating and quite exciting and undescribable situation in a way a performance works. It is a constant give and take, give and take. And I believe that's an ideal way a leadership works, to come back to the leadership aspect
0: when you're yeah. on the podium and yeah. you're giving your direction and you're yeah. having your influence the way you do yeah. on tempo especially yeah. do you ever feel pushback from the orchestra then saying no that's not h- how we want to do it tonight that's not how we're feeling well uh, well i uh, that sounds almost too conscious
1: in the from from the part of the orchestra orchestras um, react more instinctively so yes i feel that That i feel that oh it's, it's hard to get them to move tonight yeah but that might have very different reasons yeah not that they don't want maybe they are a bit tired and they try hard but it's a bit harder to to get it going yeah that's i i
0: I know that feeling so for you the differences in performance and mood can be so significant with the same orchestra from one night to another but you know it so well do you think for the, from the audience's point of view, it sounds pretty much the same? Yeah, maybe not the same, but the experience in the
1: audience might not be the same as my feeling on stage. It can be quite contraria. Yeah? Even from from um, experience I know uh, I had with professionals sit- uh, sitting in, in the audience, or my wife, um, and I thought, ah, oh, that was a bit of a dull show, and she said, oh no, it was fantastic. I was going yeah? to ask. Or the other way around. They said, it was pretty good today. I thought, mm,
0: "No, nah, well, we heard it better already. Yeah. So it's, it's very subjective. So the audience's opinion doesn't always align with how you feel coming no, off stage. No, no,
1: definitely not. And, the orchestra's opinion, they are pretty good in judging a performance because they are so used to be on stage as an ensemble. Yeah, I mean, they, they play every day together. I'm not conducting the same orchestra every day during the year. I come for certain projects or concerts or, or proper performances. With my orchestra or the orchestra, I'm, I'm the chief conductor, of obviously, more often, more frequently than with others. But they have a good good feeling if a show or a concert performance was better than another one. But that is a sum of then the contribution of 80 or
0: 100 people. Tell us about the process that an orchestra goes through preparing. How often do they get together and rehearse? How often are you as the chief conductor involved in those rehearsals? What's the commitment? Well, in general, for one concert, uh, the orchestra rehearses five times,
1: five rehearsals. Each rehearsal is two and a half hours. That is a standard concert program. And when we start the rehearsal, it is expected that everyone in the orchestra knows their individual part and can play it. So that's where we start bringing it together. Most of the time, it's repertoire the orchestra has played before, within the last 10 years or if it's very popular repertoire, they, they have performed it numerous times over the last 10 years. So they know it in a way. And then my job is to bring it all together in the way I would like it to sound. And that takes three, four, top five rehearsals of two and a half hours. And then we go on stage.
0: And before they get together as an orchestra for those five rehearsals, yeah. have they gotten together as a string section? No, no. no that's no. that's it. No. They come as individuals who yes. are prepared yes. individually. Yes.
1: In exceptional cases of exceptional difficult pieces or new pieces or, or rather unknown pieces, I would take uh, uh, sectional rehearsals. Would, would do one rehearsal with all strings and another one with all brass and then percussion and then wind players. But that is, that is uh, not the rule.
0: Tell us about the people who were in the orchestra. You were for seven years the chief conductor here at the Queensland Symphony Orchestra. And mm-hmm. I imagine that they're the most talented musicians in, in Queensland or among the most talented, talented musicians in the country. What sort of egos come into the music hall with those kind of performers?
1: Well, um, you can call it ego, but you can also call it, and that sounds maybe a bit, bit more positive. High individualism. Yeah. Imagine a violin player, a rank and file violin player, like the first violins we have on the concert podium. Maybe fourteen or or sixteen first violins. The one person has has played and practiced the instrument since she or he was five years old, and spent most of the childhood and use practicing an instrument and not playing football or, or going swimming for four for hours every day, but committing his or her time to the instrument before they even start un- university. And when we audition here, position in the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, we have between 20, 30, up to 80, 100 applicants for one job. That shows um, the demand and shows also how many high-profile candidates are around. So finally when a position gets offered to one of the applicants after a long and quite exhausting audition process, which doesn't finish on the day of the audition, then we offer it to one person and then she or he has a trial over one year or sometimes two years. So once you get the job after two years or one year, that's a high achievement. That's an amazing achievement. So The ego is there but I would call it individualist on that instrument and she or he has to be a very strong personality to stand through a process like this because that is competition on the highest level and sometimes the audition takes five, four, six, seven hours and in the last half an hour, three last standing, they have to play against each other. Same place and there's a knockout system. Yeah, that's quite tough.
0: But I'm imagining as someone who's prepared their whole life and as you say they did nothing else as a child they didn't play sport they were practicing the violin they were doing that so they could be part of the orchestra yeah. so they come with that mentality that I'm an individual performer who wants to be part of this this wonderful yeah. group yeah. performance yeah. Is, is is that the common mentality of of the musicians you work with or are they I, th- I are think they- so
1: they are they are um, surely here and then uh, musicians who had hoped to to achieve a, a Solo career, but in all honesty, you know quite early in in your um, youth, if that will happen or not, especially with with string players. Uh, Nowadays, the winners of the international competitions they are seventeen or eighteen years old, even younger. Yeah.
0: So, what's the difference between someone who has a career as a soloist and someone who is in the Queensland Symphony Orchestra?
1: A solo career means a fiddle player or a trumpet player. But there's more, more often the string players and the pianists, they travel around the country, around the world, and play solo concertos with the orchestras.
0: And is there a vast difference in the, the talent or the quality of those musicians?
1: Well, they are the best of the best.
0: Tell me about your relationship with the people in the orchestra. We, When we talk about leadership, we talk about leaders having a, a an authentic relationship with any, every one of the people they lead. Surely you don't have a relationship with all 80 or 100 members of the orchestra.
1: No, I don't. And before we talk about that, I, I need to mention that the ideas of leadership, especially in the orchestra, I'm not so sure if it's around... All aspects of leadership in the in the, in the industries um, has changed over the last 50 years uh, quite dramatically. I think 50 years ago or 60 years ago, the chief conductor was more like a general in the army. There was no discussion. There were, were was no no um, um, com- communication in both ways as much as we have it today. This is a this is a de- development which comes with the developing community and in general. I think we are, hopefully, we are more democratic in in our societies yeah, here in Australia and in Europe and in Germany um, than it was 50 years ago. So, And for me especially, I, I grew up in the East German Republic with a clear dictatorship government. I hate that. So I'm, I'm not a dictatorship leader. I never wanted to be that and I refuse to do it. Some orchestras want that more than others. And in certain parts of our relationship, of my work, it has to be clearly I'm the boss and the orchestra has to follow. But I see it more like in the, the old Latin um, word um, primus inter pares," the first amongst equals. Yeah. So, and my relationship with orchestra is based on respect, on on the appreciation of their um, high professionalism, and vice versa.
0: I was going to ask you about the effect growing up in communist East Germany had yeah. on you and your view of leadership and just simply the way people interact and, and treat each other but I think you've answered mm-hmm. that question there and it's very clear from so many people that I've interviewed that that command and control style of leadership that was so common half a century ago mm. is is almost unacceptable in in any industry and mm. it's it's interesting to hear that that's the yeah. same case in in the music yeah, industry
1: yeah but you know It still happens. And the bullying from leaders, you find all over the place. You find it in
0: orchestras. And I think you find it amongst the leaders in the industry as well. What sort of an effect does that have on an orchestra when there is that command and control or or bullying type conductor? Well usually the conductor won't stay very
1: long in his contract (laughs) because orchestras don't appreciate that type of leadership anymore. And fair enough, that's not the way music should be executed. Anyway, music is, first of all, is an unbelievable, wonderful way to communicate. And that sort of communication starts with the communication between the conductor, the orchestra, and the communication between the orchestra itself. And then, of course, that's the reason we do it, the communication with the orchestra and the audience.
0: So I asked you before about your level of relationship with the individuals through the orchestra, and it's impossible to have a, a deep and meaningful relationship with 80 people. Mm-hmm. How's the orchestra structured so that you have the right type of relationships with the right people in the orchestra? Or do you simply not have much of a personal relationship with anyone? Um, that, is, that
1: is a... a um very tricky question because there there can be personal relationships with with members of the orchestra, and there is a relationship through the structure of the orchestra. In order for the orchestra to work perfectly and efficiently, there has be um, or there is a structure of leadership roles within the orchestra. Yeah? There is a leader, the section leader in of each section. Like the principal oboe is the section leader of the oboe section. The principal flute is the leader of the four flute player section. And the concertmaster is the leader, in a way, of of all of the orchestra, but also the leader of the first violin section. And the principal cello is the leader of the cello section. So if we need to discuss matters concerning the orchestra, I would call those section leaders, and then we would talk and discuss it, and they represent their section as leaders.
0: And they have accountability for leaders. their section yes. l- reflecting yes. the things that you've yes. talked to them about. Yes. So it's very much like you can see it on an org chart. You're very much the yes. general manager and yes. their senior managers. And, yeah, and exactly. That's exactly the way it is. So, not long before you came to the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, I think in 2008, it had undergone a merger with the Queensland yeah. Philharmonic Orchestra, yeah. and that's very much like any merger that a lot of people listening would have been part of. How did that play out in, in the orchestra? Did it simply mean that half the musicians got the chop, or did the orchestra double in size? What what did that look like on a practical level?
1: Oh, On the practical level, it was an agreement that no one will lose a chop, and that over the years... The orchestra will reduce the, for a moment, bigger size through retirements and and um, leaving the orchestra for a number of different reasons. So that is only the practical part of it. The much more tricky side is how to merge two different orchestras who over the years developed their own personality. And I like I like the image of two families moving in together it's like a patchwork family you know it's a family, a very one one family with with um, eight children and the other one with 12 children and they move in or maybe you know there's some divorce happening and and a new partnership and and they they move in together in a new house and it takes a while for them to work out who is who and how are how is the the power working within the family? Where are the responsibilities? who is yeah, who is the leader within this small group? And um, it's never easy. I witnessed it, this process in a couple of German orchestras, and it was a disaster in some of them. Some orchestras split up after a couple of years to go back to the former formation. And I have to say, it's one of my really happy, happy feelings about the Queensland Symphony Orchestra that after 10 years, the two orchestras really became one orchestra and one organism, one family.
0: What do you think the difference was here in this experience that they didn't have in those other orchestras you talked about?
1: Well, I don't know the other orchestras so well to to talk about them. I think here in, in Brisbane, The two orchestras merging and the success of the merge after many years, it was not an easy process, mainly happened because of the actually people in the orchestra who wanted it to be successful and who were open for compromises, open to learn new relationships, to work within new structures and just, yeah wanted to make it happen
0: i've I've read a quote where you said that it's much harder than people think to put two orchestras together and it takes a lot of time and a a lot of goodwill yeah and that happened here and that i think that is an extraordinary process and
1: where the orchestra is now is is just in a fantastic um, ensemble yeah
0: Tell us a little bit about the personalities that you have in, or in an orchestra. Are there any stereotypical personalities that come across the different sections?
1: No, I think
0: I think um, certain
1: instruments either require a certain personality or make <laughs> produce a certain um, personality. I I see similar personalities in different orchestras, but in the same sections. That's quite interesting. Eh? That's
0: what I'm asking about. But, what are those yeah, personalities? You know, the the ones
1: who are under more pressure, like the principal winds or the principal brass players, horn players are enormously exposed, or trumpet, first trumpet, or woodwind players are first oboe, first flute, first clarinet. Of course, they, because of the pressure and because of their management, their own management, with the demands and and with the stress, they are um, the most confident musicians and the ones you have to convince first of your view about a certain piece of music or or the way the orchestra works, because these are the most precious in in the way that. They are ex- the most exposed ones. And they can
0: yeah. influence their respective
1: sections. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, But they are also the ones who need to feel confident and safe when you lead them. Because if, if someone plays wrong in the, the principal sections, then everybody will notice it.
0: Are they the people, because moving around from orchestra to orchestra as you do, when you come to a new orchestra, are they the people that you pick out first to develop a relationship with so you can have that kind of powerful fast track success over the entire orchestra?
1: No, I don't, I don't think so. Because when I go to a orchestra and work with as a guest conductor for just one project, as one concert, and I'm there only for four days, five days, there's no, not the time to, to um, develop those relationships that that's, that's uh, difficult to say how, how that works. I mean these are the key positions in the orchestra and of course they are the one who who are most how, how, to, how to put it. I mean they have to deliv- deliver more than others. So of course they are on the forefront and in a way yes I communicate with the principals in the first instance more than who is a rank and file players.
0: I've asked you a couple of questions about the relationships you develop with members of the orchestra Mm -hmm. that you've had trouble answering. Is it because as a non-musician, I don't get the power of the music and the way that you communicate with the musicians through the music itself without having to develop the relationships that I keep asking you about? No, I think um, I, I said it was tricky because I find it
1: difficult to develop personal relationships with with some members of orchestra and then treat them within the orchestra and the rehearsal world equal to everybody else so i had i experienced examples not me but i, I with with colleagues where he was my, my colleague was a very good friend with, with the first oboe player for instance and in germany you don't call each other with a f- with a uh, surname uh, with, a, with a given name you call him Herr with a f- with a surname but he called this one friend always with a with a given name and that was not good for the for the balance within the orchestra so orchestra members want to have the feeling and they have the right to feel equal yeah not one gets a better treatment. <laughs> from the conductor than the other, and if you are good friends with one or two or three then it's quite difficult to to remain this this relationship to have the orchestra on one side uh, that's the way I see it I mean I know many colleagues they have their 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 groups where they go playing cards and drink beer together but I, I, I don't think that's good
0: is that something that i'm overplaying because i don't understand the dynamic or is it something that you think about a lot that it's important for you to maintain a, a balanced relationship right across the yeah. audience no no i think i i thought about it a
1: lot because in a way it it makes you as a conductor sometimes a bit lonely yeah you 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 don't have this buddy group the
0: the musicians have that's very interesting. When you were here at the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, the QSO, as I, uh, I read it's referred to, in the last couple of years, there's a 25% turnover in musicians. What mm. brings about that kind of turnover in musicians? And is it a concern for you as a conductor when that's going on? No, not at all.
1: I think that was one of the, one of the side processes with the merch, happening with the merch. Also, there was a generation turnover, in, in the orchestra. So at some point, many musicians 30 years ago joined the orchestra in the same age group. And then this was now the period where these these um, colleagues retired or resigned. And therefore, we had to fill the positions, which, and which was, especially for an orchestra, after a merge, was a fantastic chance to build or to rebuild the orchestra and especially key positions in the orchestra. So we have uh, most of the key players, the principal players, now with young, with young players. The principal oboe, principal flute, principal clarinet, principal piccolo, principal bass clarinet, contrabassoon, principal horn, principal trumpet. So that's all all new colleagues in the orchestra, and they bring new ideas fresh ideas, their own personalities, which shakes the orchestra as an organism at times. But fortunately, all the appointments were really fortunate for the orchestra. And it makes makes it a
0: completely new ensemble. So you had some, the older players leave and mm-hmm. you replace some of those principal performers mm-hmm. with, with younger players. Mm-hmm. Were there some people in the middle, some middle-aged players who yeah, were yeah. waiting for their chance to become the principal who missed out? no it's it's not a system where where you you step up yeah or oh, you come in as you a come principal in.
1: yeah you oh. don't step up you you um you can apply for the position because it's a, it's a different position you play a different part in the orchestra so um for for instance every principal player has an associate yeah? because not every first oboe as a principal oboe player plays every concert So he has an associate uh, oboe player and if the principal when the principal position becomes vacant not autom- automatically, the, the associate player steps up. He can apply for it and audition for it,
0: but it is not an automatic um, process. Getcha. That's, mm. that's very interesting. Mm. Tell me about what you know now, not musically, because I'm sure that's changed a lot as well, but what you know now as a leader of people that you didn't know when you were 19 and you stood in front of your first orchestra.
1: Well, that's a lot. Uh, I mean, that has, has been that's a while ago, then I was 19. I would rather go back only 20 years when I had my first chief conductor position. What I learned now is first to communicate with the orchestra as the whole organism is, is most important. Even talk and communicate about things in process, not just results, but Thing. In process, I remember that one of the criticisms I heard when I left my first chief conductor job was uh, I never promised anything which didn't happen then, but sometimes it took a while until they got information what will happen. Because I was so afraid to tell things which were not finalized, you know, in, in a way sort of plans I had before they were finalized. So... I think that's something I, I would try to avoid nowadays. To, so you let the to, orchestra to,
0: in on your thought process in yeah, a way I that's evolving. I think that's that
1: is very important and and ask for the input from the orchestra because finally, no one is more interested, deeply interested in the future and in the development of the orchestra than the members themselves. Yeah, chief executives, chief conductors managing directors, they are there only for a limited time. Four years, five years, ten years tops. Yeah, but the orchestra as an ensemble has a vital interest to to survive as an ensemble, especially in our uh, more competitive and in a way endangered world. Uh, so the, the finance is not getting better, The situation quite the contrary. And they also are interested not just in the in the pure existence of the orchestra, but also in the development of the orchestra. So as more you involve an orchestra in a, in a sensible way, um, as better. So that's something I learned. What's the future of orchestral music? Well, I don't know. <laughs> we, I hope that this great art form, um, which is now only, in a way, only 250, 300 years old, um, will survive the next 100 years. Orchestra have changed a lot in, in the ways they present themselves in the ways they present programs and in the way they try to find new audience um, I think they do very well especially here in Australia I, I find so many good ideas how to approach younger audience so the German orchestras they can learn from it They some of them they are too confident that it will it, it, it will continue for the next 50 years as it was before. I mean, we have, we have 80 orchestras in Germany, even small towns where maybe with, with a population of 60,000, 70,000, they have their own orchestra. Some have an opera house with ensemble who, who work full-time around the year. It's such a different yeah. part of your cultures. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. But that comes from the history, you know, where Germany had many, many small parts with their own kingdoms or a count um, reigned over over a certain part. And they all wanted to show, show off and, <laughs> and build their own opera house and orchestra. And from that time, we have this amazing net. Of, of cultural
0: institutions. And the way you show off is by having a grand orchestra. Yeah. yeah. What are some of those great ideas that you've seen in Australia about modernizing the way that you attract an audience? Oh, for instance, um, to go into schools, to do lots for, for you,
1: youth audience, to expand uh, repertoire, to play movie music, to live, mu- uh, live music to a movie, yeah, like the QSO does, and, and the other orchestras as well, to invite to, for instance, high school students into the orchestra to play along the professionals. The yeah. QSO does it. I will do a similar um, afternoon next next uh, month in in Hobart with the TSO. That's a great great way to to excite young instrumentalists for the orchestra world. All the education programs have expanded here in the orchestra world, and I think that's a that's a wonderful wonderful way to. Yeah, to, to reach the younger generation, but not in a way that we want to educate them with what we do, but to meet them halfway and ask what might they want to hear from us or what might they want to, to experience, what, what do they bring. We, we did a concert with music from, from, the, from games, computer games, you know, they have old music in the background. All of those iPod games or the iPad games. So we had a concert
0: with just music from those games put on. I was, I was about to ask whether any of those things hurt your soul as a man from orchestral heartland in Europe, uh, especially playing music from movies or music from video games. But it doesn't seem like it does. You seem really excited about those new ideas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't want... To, uh, what I'm not excited about is to hear classical
1: music in, in shopping centers all day around because that I think that's just a waste and it's getting annoying. But play music from the movies, which often is great music, yeah, or from the computer games, which is not often that great music. But, you know, it's it's still music and the kids know it. And then that is a way to, to get them so engaged. Around.
0: Yeah. Tell us about the things that you know about leadership that are the same for every discipline, not just for an orchestra. As a as a leader, a very senior leader and well known leader in your field, what have you learned about leadership that transcends orchestral music? Well, I'm, I haven't been a
1: leadership in, in different uh, in in a different industry. I guess leaders often want to be laughed by their by their company or or ensemble, or group, I think that's wrong. That doesn't work. The best thing we can achieve is to be respected for what we can do and respected as a person. And if we transport that into into our ensemble, orchestra, group, industry, whatever, that we respect every individual for what their specific knowledge and, and talent is and include them as much as it's possible within what we do then that's the best we can do
0: good answer all right four very last questions to finish off so we get to know you as a person tell us about the saturday night you most look forward to a big party with lots of people you know or an intimate dinner with some of your closest friends
1: Oh, I would li- like to go out with my wife for dinner on Saturday night. That would be lovely.
0: Your wife, you, you've given me, you, you've taken option C. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I like that. Are you more likely to get bogged down in detail or caught daydreaming? More detail. Detailed, man. How do you make your decisions? Are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? I think, I think uh, rational. And last question, you're going on a road trip. Do you like to plan the route, book the hotels and know exactly where you're going? Or do you just get in the car and drive? Okay, if I'm on my own, I get in the car and drive. If I'm with my, with my family, I plan. Very good. Johannes Fritz, thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous. You're welcome. What a remarkable and thoughtful man. A man of such enormous talent and skill who finds the time to ponder the intricacies of the human condition. There were so many wonderful insights in that conversation, but for me, I liked hearing that the tone of orchestral leadership has developed in parallel with almost every industry and rendered the command and control style as outdated, unfashionable and unacceptable. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page from this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.